Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Today we have a potential end in sight for the Syrian civil war. We're going to talk about some of the political turmoil in Brazil, and then we'll speak on what Ukraine might do next, as Bakhmut looks like it's about to fall. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Russia continuing its missile bombing campaign over Ukraine, targeting civilian infrastructure, namely their electricity generation, but railroads and train stations and roads and other logistical facilities are also being targeted, and these missile barrages continue to grow, which stands, again, in stark contrast to people who've been saying since, from what I saw June, but a According to the Duran, since March, I didn't see these reports back in March, I saw them in June, these reports that Russia was running out of ammunition. All these missile barrages that we're seeing now, this constant rain of missiles, stands in complete stark contrast to those reports. So, uh, I, don't, I don't know why people keep saying, and by people I mean the, you know, the, the propaganda press, <laughs> And when I say I don't know, I mean I do know that they want to paint the narrative that Ukraine is winning, but from a, but for the independent news outlets, and I haven't seen many of them doing this, I don't see how you can say that Russia's running out of ammunition. When they're maintaining a rate of artillery fire that is, as the Ukrainians themselves have admitted, is 8 to 1, sometimes 10 to 1. 8 to 1 to 10 to 1 advantage in favor of the Russians in terms of artillery fire. Like, the shells that they're just dropping on the Ukrainians is 8 to 10 times greater. And the Ukrainians are struggling to keep up. And it's been this way for months. It, it has been this way since at least, well, I was about to say since at least the summer, but quite frankly, it would have been that way since the start of the war. It's not like these are new artillery pieces the Russians have put out. So it must have been this way for just about the entirety of the war. Probably even a greater discrepancy before we sent in all that weapons and ammunition to the Ukrainians. So how can we take seriously reports that Russia's running out of ammunition? I don't know. I don't take them seriously. But we can definitively see now if any of us did believe those reports, that those reports were wrong. So, I'd imagine that these bombardments are going to continue right up until the moment that the Russians start their offensive. And quite frankly, I'm sure the missile bombing campaign is just going to continue. Because now, the Russians are attacking directly what's left of Ukraine's air defense. Now, they did some good damage in the beginning of the war, and then the Russian Air Force decided to sit it out. Now, these missile barrages are coming in on Russian air defenses. And I gotta say, it's the more I think about it, the more I realize that the Russian military is run by some of the brightest minds on the planet. Because they started off these, bar these barrages really, really small. 100 missiles. 100 and something missiles. They would, they would send them piecemeal, and they would wait. They would wait for like a week. Let the Ukrainians come in and start fixing shit, right? And so when they do the barrage the first time, you're attacking targets that you think are important. And you being, from the Russian perspective, you're attacking targets that you think are important. Then you stop for a little bit. You let the Ukrainians come in and start fixing things. They're going to prioritize what they think is important. So now, if you're the Russian high command, you get to see what the Ukrainians think is actually important the, of the things that you destroyed. And now you can target those things deliberately. Because the Ukrainians deem them worthy to be repaired, and they make them the first thing to be repaired, well, they've given away 
something that they believe to be critical to their war effort. Now you can target it deliberately. Then you start expanding the barrages. Now it's 130. Now it's 140 missiles. Now it's 200 missiles. And you start expanding the range and the reach of the barrages to other places and other targets that you also think are important. Then you wait a little bit. Let the Ukrainians start prioritizing things. Because maybe the, the structures you damaged in the wider barrages take a higher priority than what you were targeting before. Now you get to see other things that the Ukrainians deem to be potentially more important than in the area you first started targeting. Then you come in again, deliberately targeting these areas that the Ukrainians, through their you know prioritization of repairs, deem to be important. And you just repeat the process over and over and over again, to where at this point they're just bombing all of Ukraine, and they're bombing critical areas of Ukraine's war effort. And they didn't. They didn't need. They needed nothing more than the Ukrainians to tell them where to bomb. But as they were bombing it lightly, the Ukrainian air defenses kicked in. So back when it was 100 and 100 something missiles, Ukraine's air defenses kick in. And they start shooting down these missiles. Uh, so the damage is very minimal. But Russia has plenty of missiles and they were sprinkling them across Ukraine before. The Ukrainians were using up their air defenses on the lighter barrages rather than reserving them. And granted, why would they reserve them when, it's not like they predicted that a massive missile barrage was going to come at them. This was a very, very incremental growth. But their air defenses kick in. They start taking out these missiles. But that means the Ukraine is depleting their supply of these missiles. These air defense missiles. So if they're depleting their supply of air defense missiles at the same time that the Russians are increasing the size and scope of their barrages, now we get to this point where the Ukrainian air defenses are just not adequate anymore to deal with the size of the barrages in and of themselves, but they're also running low on missiles. And because the Russians were able to use Ukraine defending itself to locate these defenses use their own military intelligence to track the movement of those mobile air defenses, and then every time they would send in a new wave of missiles, they would see whether or not their tracking of these defense systems was accurate. They know everything. They know where Ukraine's air defenses are because of the previous barrages. Now that they're coming in heavy with these missile barrages, they are now starting to target deliberately Ukraine's air defenses, and they know where all of them are. It's really smart, and it took till now for me to see this broader picture here. Ukraine is going to be in a very, very bad position when the offensive begins. Because when the offensive begins, I, I doubt that the Russian Air Force is going to be sitting that one out like they've been sitting out the majority of this war. And once the air defenses are gone, well, now you have nothing. Now, now every bomb and every missile that comes in gets to reach its target. That opens the door to targeting troop movements. That opens the door to targeting your, your, uh, what is it? Your military and your government facilities. It opens the door for these missiles to go literally anywhere unopposed. And if the missiles can go anywhere unopposed, because the air defenses are just uh, evaporated, then that means the Russian Air Force can come in and do whatever it wants unopposed. And it's the Air Force that I feel is going to do most of the, you know, the assisting of the ground troops with close-up airstrikes. And if Ukraine's air defenses are effectively non-existent at that point, well, they're, they're screwed. They have been ground down in more ways than one. Like We've been focusing on the manpower aspect of this, but... We've been and we've also seen some of the equipment aspect of this, the equipment attrition. But on the ammunition side of things, on their air defenses as well, they have also been ground down by this gradual bombing campaign, which will end in Ukraine not being able to defend itself when the Russian Air Force shows up again. Which means Russia will have total air superiority. And numerical superiority on the ground. And they control the waters around Ukraine. It's looking bad for Ukraine. But no one wants to negotiate. 
we we can see that Zelensky and Zeluzhny, they have admitted very subtly that they're going to lose, and we covered that uh, last week. But they've said they're going to lose. We can see that they're going to lose. We can, through all this, through everything that we can observe that the Russians and the Ukrainians themselves are doing, we can observe they're going to lose. And yet, no one wants to make the peace. Zelensky is still entertaining dreams of retaking Crimea and not negotiating until all Russian troops are pulled out of his territory. And no one on this side of the Atlantic is going to force him to say otherwise. So it's just going to go on until the Russians finish this for us. And now I'm also starting to see increasing talk among people on the Russia's going to win side of the argument saying that there wasn't that there isn't going to be a Ukraine on the other side of this which is what I've been saying this entire time but the consensus amongst most of the sources I've been listening to in this war was that there would be a, a rump state Ukraine that Russia would come in they'd take everything to the east of the Dnieper river they'd secure their land bridge to Crimea ma- secure their land bridge to Odessa and Transnistria that's basically the entire s- southern coastline of Ukraine secure their land bridges, and then leave a rump state landlocked Ukraine. Technically, they have access to the sea because of the Dnieper River. It's a really big river, but they'd have to go through Russia to get to it. But that's that was the consensus on how the sources I've been listening to, like Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor, the Duran, Jimmy Dore, the Grey Zone, and even Jackson Hinkle, that's sort of the consensus that a lot of they were a lot of them were coming to regarding how they thought the war was going to play out as Ukraine lost. They thought that there would still be a Ukraine, just a rump state, which is to say a very weak and not very effective state at all, but there'd still be a Ukraine. And you know me, I've been saying that judging off Russia's ambitions and their stated war aims, I don't see how you can still have a Ukraine on the other side of this. How do you denazify Ukraine without, at the very least, being able to occupy every inch of the country for the purpose of cleaning out the Nazis, if that's your mission? You have to be able to occupy all of Ukraine to do that. How are you going to demilitarize Ukraine if you cannot occupy this country and force that upon them? How are you going to you can't do that without first establishing control over this country. Now, maybe you relinquish that control later on and let them be an independent country. But you can't do denazification or demilitarization without first being able, to, being able to militarily occupy this country. So, in my mind, I didn't see how Ukraine was going to solve this. Plus, if Ukraine is defeated, they have every incentive to join NATO because they were defeated by a power that was smaller and weaker at the time that they fought the war, and Ukraine would have been bigger and stronger. So if you lose, when Russia is the size that it was before the war, and Ukraine was the size that it was before the war, and Ukraine loses, now Russia has half of Ukraine under its belt, and half of Ukraine's population, and Ukraine's population and size is both cut in half. Well, how are you, you going to defend yourself from this clearly hostile power? Ukraine would have every incentive to break whatever treaty that they had with Russia and go hard, all in on NATO, all in on the EU, all in on U.S. and Western aid and assistance and militarization. And the Russians, quite frankly, have no reason to trust that the Ukrainians would honor an agreement anyway. They didn't honor Minsk for eight years. They were playing politics and no one on our side forced them to the table. Russia would have no reason to believe that Ukraine would honor a treaty with them anyway. So, I didn't see a world, or I didn't see a very high possibility, I'll say that, that Ukraine maintained its independence, or even existed as a sovereign state after this war. I just didn't see it. And now it's starting to look like people are coming around to my position on this. Although, with the interesting caveat being that people believe that Poland is going to come occupy parts of Ukraine... Uh, instead of just all of it going to Russia. But it's interesting to see how the conversation has shifted to 
uh, away from rum state Ukraine to Ukraine gets completely annexed just by multiple powers. And, well, I, I can see the, the Poland angle. I can see it completely. I just don't know if that's how it's going to play out. Because the way it's looking, it's looking like it's still going to be a total Russian annexation of this country. People will speak of a guerrilla war being fought in the western parts of Ukraine. But given how many Ukrainians fled the country when the war began, if, well, slash when Ukraine's army collapses and Russia just starts rolling over them, heading west at breakneck speeds, what's to keep the people living in the western half of Ukraine from fleeing as well? I mean, the, the mayor of Kiev has reportedly been telling people that they should leave because you just can't support them. They don't have the electricity. They don't have the energy. They don't have the, the fuel, the, the heating. He's been telling the people in the city to leave. So, if he's telling you to leave, and the people of Ukraine are willing to leave anyway to avoid being under Russian rule, what's to stop any potential resistance movement in the western half of Ukraine from leaving the country too when the Russians start rolling in? Now Russia has a, whole, a brand new country to themselves populated with a majority, with an either a 50-50 split or a majority of Russian-speaking, pro-Russian Ukrainians, slash ethnic Russians. And then the people living in Russia, who may have been living in Ukraine before the collapse of the Soviet Union, maybe they move back home. Maybe Russia has their own version of the Homestead Act and move people into the region. All those citizens of the Donbass who fled into Russia before the war began, they return home, maybe they head further west. And take up all the new land. Russia's going to make use of the land. Make no mistake. And in order to do that, you need people to live there. We might see, for lack of a better term here, ethnic cleansing. Except by way of mass migration. Migration of the Ukrainians out of Ukraine. And migration of the Russians and the pro-Russian populations in to Ukraine. And then, where's your resistance movement? Because the Russian military is going to be positioned on the border anyway. They believe that they're going to be in a long-term confrontation with the West. So, of course, they're going to keep the troops on the border. That That's the whole region where this insurgency would otherwise be fought. So, it's it's looking really rough for Ukraine. But it's it's been very interesting to watch the conversation shift towards where I am on this issue. Uh, but that's enough of Ukraine for the time being. We'll get back to them. Uh, we have NATO's Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, saying that Western countries need to be prepared to provide long-term support for Ukraine. This is echoing sentiments spoken by Biden and the sentiment which was observable by the U.S. Congress when Zelensky went to Capitol Hill. Ukraine's going to lose, so it'll be interesting to see how all these people react to investing so heavily into this losing endeavor. We'll see that when that time comes. Uh, a Ukrainian missile has landed in Belarus. No one was killed, but now the prospect of a Belarusian, a formal Belarusian entry into the war is being talked about. We've been talking about the potential for the joint military units between Belarusian and Russian military who have been merged into single units under Russian command. We've talked about them potentially coming down from the north when Russia begins its offensive. So maybe that's what happens. Maybe the Belarusians do get involved in the war in a formal way. We'll, we'll see. We don't know yet. We'll just have to watch how this whole thing plays out. China has appointed a new foreign minister, uh, Chin Gang, which is the he was the former ambassador to the United States. He is now China's foreign minister, replacing uh, Wang Yi. I believe that was his name. So he's the new guy in charge. I don't expect too much to change on the Chinese foreign policy, because uh, he's not exactly pro-Western. And if anything, he's going to call us out more than Wang Yi did for our actions. And he's going to pursued the multipolar world just the same as his predecessor did. So, it's a change of person, but not a change of policy, to put it simply. We have 
the Israeli military bombing the Damascus airport in Syria with missiles, which has temporarily taken the airport out of service. It'll be interesting to see how Israel reacts to this story that we're going to talk about when we get into the meat of this episode. Because the times are changing in the Middle East, and Israel is not setting itself up for success in the days to come. We have Lula da Silva being sworn in as the president of Brazil, and we'll be talking more about Brazil later on this episode. Uh, but as he's about to be sworn in... Oh, did I say he was? Oh, no, he's... he's oh, yeah, 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 he was. <laughs> I, I was about to say, oh, no, I, I, I jumped the gun. He's going to be sworn in in January, and then I realized, oh, wait, it is January. He was sworn in on New Year's Day as the president of Brazil. But the protests uh, against his election and against the election in general have yet to cease, and Bolsonaro has yet to concede defeat. In fact, he did not even hand over the sash, the presidential sash, which is supposed to be a symbolic gesture for the transfer of power. And we'll get into that again later on this episode. Uh, big news, Colombia and Venezuela have opened their border traffic, uh, th they've opened their border to civilian traffic, excuse me, and this came after a normalization of relations between the two countries, which this has sort of formalized the end to. Not the end as in they're going back to being hostile, but as in they've completed the process of normalizing the relations. So now I expect trade between them is going to expand uh, both legal and illicit, <laughs> probably. But hey, at least uh, this is a positive development. We don't need people fighting with each other in Latin America. We have North Korea's Kim Jong-un announcing plans for an exponential increase in his, his country's number of nuclear warheads. Uh, we'll just leave that on the table. Uh, they have the ability to do it. They have the ability to do it. And, but considering that his nuclear arsenal is rather small, the exponential expansion will probably put him up to somewhere around Israel level maybe a hundred warheads. And people might freak out about that, but, you know, they haven't used the nukes yet, you know, so... Uh, and we haven't invaded them, uh, conveniently. It's very strange how America doesn't invade countries that have nukes. So, you know, may maybe every country needs a nuclear weapon. <laughs> uh, let me stop. I'm in favor of denuclearization, but, you know, uh, I was being honest when I said that. We don't invade countries that have nukes. We'll play crazy games like we do with Russia, but we won't invade them. And lastly, we have countries placing travel restrictions on Chinese nationals, with some countries outright banning inbound flights from China, reportedly over COVID, but I don't buy it. I do not buy it one bit. There were no restrictions at the World Cup. No COVID restrictions. No one was doing. No one was wearing masks. No one was doing a social distancing. In fact, I believe there was a story that the Chinese had to play the World Cup on like a, a eight-second delay so they could censor, they could censor images of crowds being masked without any of the COVID restrictions. But there were no none of these COVID restrictions at the world leaders. Qatar did not immediately go into a lockdown the second the thing was over to curb COVID and the, the super spreader of the World Cup, and the audience came from all over the world. None of the countries that they went back home to put them under uh, quarantine for two weeks, three weeks. So, and plus we have world leaders meeting in person again, as we saw with the G7 and the G20. These world leaders are meeting in person again. Uh, and uh, just look at Putin in Belarus, you know, yeah, Macron, whenever he goes out of country. You have China's Xi Jinping going places. He just went to Saudi Arabia. And Biden went to Saudi Arabia. And all these people meeting in person. No one is enforcing COVID rules and COVID restrictions anymore. So COVID by itself is observably not the issue behind these restrictions on Chinese flights. Now, I can't tell you what the actual reason is. But I just found that it's very interesting that as I was gathering the news, I came across all these stories about at least these restrictions on Chinese Chinese people traveling to these countries. Very, very strange. Uh, if I had to guess, America had something to do with it, but we know it's not COVID. We, we can just say that definitively. But now, we've gotten through the not-so-rapid-fire news, and we can get into the meat of this episode in just a moment.
Alrighty, we are back, and now we're going to talk about Syria. Because the end appears to be coming closer for the Syrian civil war. And what has prompted me to make this little segment of the episode is that Russia and Turkey are actively in talks over Syrian war discussions, namely on potentially bringing the war to an end. And they've made some good progress on, you know, orchestrating a framework for these discussions to happen. The foreign ministers, uh, Melvut, uh, no, that's not Melvut, Mev, Mevlut, Kavusoglu of Turkey, we have Sergei Lavrov of Russia, and Faisal Mekdad of Syria, all these foreign ministers of all three countries, they'll be meeting sometime in January, and they'll be most likely laying the groundwork for more meetings and basically establishing everyone's interests here and making known who stands where on what issues. And this will probably most likely really just be the groundwork for later talks and eventually a three-way meeting between Putin, Erdogan, and Assad. As well as, even after that, direct one-on-one talks between just Assad and Erdogan, which is something that Assad currently doesn't want to do. So I imagine that we'll, he's going to see how these talks go between the foreign ministers and eventually the three-way meeting. And, you know, the, the diplomacy that happens off-camera as well, we have to remember that. He's probably going to see how all that goes before making the determination to have a one-on-one talk with Erdogan. And maybe he never will, but it looks like the end of the Syrian civil war really is coming into view. I mean, we have three of the biggest powers here in alignment on bringing this thing to an end. Uh, I know I didn't mention Iran in these talks, but Iran is on board. So you have Russia, Turkey, and Iran all on board uh, with ending, with coming together to end the Syrian civil war. You have Saudi Arabia having done a rapprochement with Syria's Assad government. They're no longer in the picture as a hostile, as or at least as an overtly hostile country. They will accept a Syria run by Assad. So that's another major player who is effectively on the side of ending the Syrian civil war. And Iraq is on board ending the Syrian civil war. They're Iran's ally. So you have, if really all the all the countries that matter in alignment on this issue, with the sole exceptions being the United States and Israel. Israel is still conducting bombing campaigns in Syria, and their other neighbors as well, but Syria is the big one. It'll be interesting to see how Israel responds to the end of the Syrian civil war. And I've, I've talked about Israel before, and how they were really playing a, a bad game. Like, they were, they're on a collision course of destruction, but they won't make any course corrections. Like, they, they want to fight Iran, they want to fight Syria, they, they, they bomb places in Lebanon, they bomb places in Jordan. And then they're fighting the Palestinians at home, and it's like, at what point do you make the course correction? Because Iran's power is growing, mind you. Like, it's, it's, Iran has been greatly overshadowed by Russia and Turkey in the recent months, but make no mistake, Iran's power in this region has grown. Assad was not the only government that countries in the Middle East did a rapprochement with. Arabia did a rapprochement with Iran. A lot of countries that stood against them have done a rapprochement with Iran, I believe, uh, the UAE as well. Iran's power is growing. Iran is winning in the Yemen civil war. Iran's bet on Syria is a winning one. Assad is about to win. And he has the backing of other major players. This is going to be a major victory for the Iranians. Even though they're they're not as involved in the what appears to be the ending process of this war, they've played an integral role in keeping Assad in the fight. And they've worked with the Russians on that military intervention that took place back in like 2015. And now we have even Turkey coming on to the side of Assad. Assad winning this war will be a strategic victory for the Iranians, make no mistake. 
and Assad is an ally of Iran. So you're going to have a belt of, ally, of Iranian allies running from Iran proper all the way to Lebanon. How does Israel respond to this? Because once the war in Syria is over, all that's left is to turn your guns on the outsiders who won't leave you alone. That means the United States. That means Israel. And from there, you can get to fighting the jihadist groups who will be cleaned out relatively quickly once the civil war is over. They won't have many places to hide. So how does Israel, who refuses to stop bombing its neighbors, respond to a world where its neighbors are no longer too distracted to shoot them back? That'll be interesting to see. I imagine an ultimatum is going to end up being delivered to them, and we'll see how they respond. Maybe they'll take it with humility and stop, or they'll press forward and initiate their own destruction. They cannot fight all their neighbors again like they did in their past. That that That's not in the cards anymore. That is not in the cards anymore. We'll see what Israel does. That's one of the, the interesting questions about this development here is what the Israelis will do, what the Americans will do. Uh, we will probably try to stay in Syria until we can't, and then we'll, we'll wait until the last moment and then pull the forces out and then suffer an embarrassing defeat, and then we'll leave. Now, we could have pulled out before. Trump ordered the troops to be pulled out back when he was still president. And they went behind his back and made them stay. And now we're going to be in this debacle too, even though we wouldn't have. How, how nice it was to have a, a real president. All these debacles were in that would have been ended without an embarrassment under him. But people in the, in the swamp, the deep state, they thought they knew better. And now we suffer humiliation after humiliation after humiliation. Afghanistan, Ukraine, Syria, and then Taiwan. It's, it's just one after the next. So, we'll see how America and Israel respond to this. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's looking like the end of Syria's civil war is really coming into view. And I, it can't be stressed enough that this is a development which has been made possible by the major shift in Turkey's position. Like, sure, Assad would have won over time with the backing of Russia and Iran. They were making gains... But with Turkey on their side now, which is this major shift in Turkey's position, because they went from being hostile, openly hostile when the, Syri the civil war began, to Assad's government in Syria. Turkey was hostile. Then they went to taking up a more neutral stance over these past few years. To now they're pursuing a, a positive relationship with Assad. Erdogan is pursuing positive relations with Assad. And, you know, I hope they succeed. I mean, if they, they want these positive relations with Assad, that's going to be good for Turkey, that's going to be good for Syria, that's going to be good for everyone living in Syria. A lot of people will have the opportunity to go home. We'll see how many of those migrants in Europe do end up going home. But, you know, I hope that Turkey succeeds in getting this positive relationship. Because the end of the war will come if they do this. And if the war is over, then what reason will we, the United States, have to stay? I can already see the excuses that'll be made. Oh, power vacuum, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I can already see it, but we'll be able to bring our troops home, which is always a positive development. <sighs> I'm liking this whole multipolar world already, folks. But it looks like not one, but two wars might be coming to an end next year. Ukraine and Syria. So, positive, positive developments. If only they could have come sooner. That's all I have to say on that. But now we'll talk about Brazil. Because some interesting things have come out of Brazil, and we've talked a little bit about them over these past few weeks with their elections, and Bolsonaro refusing to concede defeat, and there was even talk of the military getting involved. We have yet to see intervention on the side of the military, uh, whether or not they will, there was supposedly some sort of deadline for military intervention to take place. It did not happen. 
so I don't think that there I'm not entirely sure if there will be a military intervention and make no I'm not on anyone's side here I am not on anyone's side here this is not my country but this is just some of the things that were being talked about uh, the the overturning of the election and it looks like Lula da Silva is going to be the president of Brazil uh, I brought up earlier that Bolsonaro left the country. He was on board of a military plane. He flew to Orlando, Florida. And because he left, he won't be there to hand over the presidential sash to Lula as a part of the the ceremony for handing over the, uh, the power, the transition of power. But before I get into some of Bolsonaro's statements here, I gotta say, I don't know how I feel about political exiles coming here every time they lose in their home country. I mean, we we had just off of recent history, we had Juan Guaido, who was president during Trump's 2020 State of the Union. He's the uh, supposedly the legitimate leader of Venezuela instead of Nicolas Maduro. We had Juan Guaido at the State of the Union address in 2020. We have a bunch of people from the Afghan puppet state we set up who we evacuated before our own citizens last year, well, two years ago now, when uh, Af the Republic, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan fell and the Islamic Emirate came to power. So we, we grabbed a whole bunch of them. Now they're exiles and they're here. Now we have Bolsonaro here. And I have a sneaking suspicion that when Ukraine loses the war, if Zelensky manages to survive, to survive that whole ordeal, he, too, will be given a first-class ticket to the United States along with a number of his Nazi buddies. And the same is going to happen with Taiwan, just, you know, without all the Nazis. So, uh, I really don't know how I feel about all, the, how all these exiles coming here. Like, and I, I'll, I'll come back to that in a bit, but I want to get over Bolsonaro's statements, you know, not, not bury the story here. Because uh, he gave a farewell address on Facebook prior to heading off to the United States, and in it, he said that he had hope for the future, and that, quote, battles are lost, but we will not lose the war, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, we are not going to believe, we do not believe that the world will end on January 1st, end quote. And January 1st was the inauguration of Lula da Silva. So, We'll observe what Bolsonaro does from this point onwards, but going off that statement, we, battles are lost, but we will not lose the war. I fear, I fear that all these exiles coming here with their problems are going to try to drag us into their problems. See what I'm saying? But... I also fear that as they come here, they will bring with them really strange agendas and strange ideas. Ideas that will poison the well of American political thought in favor of turning the American public sentiment against the country that they were defeated by or against, in this case, the political faction within their country that they were ousted by. I do not want America getting involved in Brazil's politics. Like, if Brazil is invaded by some extra hemispheric power, like, if, if France and Britain and Spain and Port... If Portugal decided they wanted their colony back, we're coming to defend Brazil, okay? That, that, that's my stance. If Angola decided they wanted beef with Brazil and they landed troops, we're coming to Brazil's aid. If China did, we're coming to Brazil's aid. That, that's the Monroe Doctrine. That's where I stand. But I do not want any part of Brazil's politics. America should not be involved in their politics, just as they shouldn't be involved in ours. You know. But as these exiles come here, and they haven't conceded any defeat, we live in an era where no one concedes defeat. No one concedes defeat. For better or worse, no one concedes defeat. So they come here after having lost. Taiwan, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, leave mainland China, go to Taiwan, they lost, but they don't concede defeat. And and we, we go on with these, these fake state of affairs. Huang Guaido doesn't concede defeat. We go on with these 
these fake state of affairs where we pretend that these people and these these powers, these forces, are what they say they are, even though they are observably not. Juan Guaido is observably not the president of Venezuela. Bolsonaro is, as far as we're concerned, observably not the president of Brazil anymore. Taiwan, it, the Republic of China, is observably not the legitimate China, which is why we don't call them China. We call the People's Republic of China. We call them China. And when Ukraine is defeated, I don't believe Zelensky is going to concede defeat. He's just going to come over here. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure if he's going to disappear either. I'm not entirely sure. But they all come here, and then they start to lobby on behalf of their power. On behalf of their country. Because they don't like being ousted from power. And it's it's a fear that I have that as more... We're looking at a, a good wave of these sorts of exiles coming here in just the next handful of years. And really just the next two. Uh, uh, depending on when the Taiwan War happens. But they'll come here and then you'll have people in America who get who get strange ideas about us going to go solve other people's problems in their countries instead of just accepting that the, the tides had turned in their country. You know? And, and I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, I'd still feel this way even if we lived in isolationist America. Even if we lived in that America, I'd still have these concerns. But at least then I would know that there'd be a strong immune response to these attempts to get us into other people's countries within our government. Like, the immune response, I, I can expect that of regular people. I expect nothing less than the complete selling out of our country by our government. There's no immune response in our government. It's, oh, how can we help you? Oh, how much money do you need? Oh, how many weapons can we give them? Oh, we, America has to do something. That, that's, that, that's the problem we have. We don't live in isolationist America at the moment. We live in interventionist America. Uh, an America that is in the business of getting into other people's business and constantly seeks to get involved in someone else's affairs only ever in want of some half-decent reason to do so. So as these exiles come here saying, I'm the legitimate ruler of this country or we're the legitimate China or Russia is not the legitimate ruler of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine belongs to us. Ukraine will always be a, a free people and... All the Taiwan is a free and democratic society. We have to stand up to these people. We have to stand up to Lula da Silva's Marxism and communism. We have to stand up to Putin's Russia and stand up to Xi Jinping and Chinese authoritarianism. We have to stand up to Nicolas Maduro and Venezuela. And it's like, as all of these people come here, saying things like that because they won't concede defeat. And I, I can already, you know, there are similarities between them and Trump. But I can speak on the American elections. I, I can't speak on any of them. And quite frankly, even if I could, they're not my country. They're not my responsibility. So all these, these exiles coming here, trying to rally support from us, to go do something about their country. Uh, I'm concerned. That people in this country. The politicos. Will try to do something. And go get us into some more. Trash. They're addicted to trash. The interventionists among us are addicted to trash. And they can't stay out of a garbage can. For more than five seconds. Before a, a dumpster diving again. It's it's quite frankly insane to watch and almost disgusting, but that's the America we live in. So as these people come here, I am very worried. Cause, I mean, just look at the anti-China sentiment among the conservative voices in America. And how they immediately associate themselves with Taiwan. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to do for... How, how, America needs to defend Taiwan. Why? Why? Oh, chips and freedom and democracy. Well, we have freedom and democracy here at home. <laughs> we have enough of that here at home. As a matter of fact, we don't have enough. We should be focusing on our 
own elections, which get called into question every cycle now, because we count ballots after election day now. Maybe we should be focusing on freedom and democracy here in America, and how our constitutional rights keep getting violated by these politicians. Maybe instead of going overseas to go give job security to the Taiwanese, we should manufacture chips here in the United States and remove that dependency altogether. How about that? That's an American first policy. But uh, I, uh, but look, even the America first wing of this country is all on board intervening just in the places that they want to intervene. And uh, I I don't like. I say I don't know how I feel, but as I'm as I'm talking about it, I think I've come to my conclusion. I know how I feel now. I don't like these exiles coming here. Like if if they came and didn't make trouble, okay. If they come and don't make trouble, okay. We've we've had that before. We've had plenty of exiles, political exiles from Europe and other places coming here before, and they blended into American society and then they left the issue alone. They conceded that they lost, and then they came here and left it alone and made a new life for themselves. Okay, fine, fine, you got me. But don't come here and then try to rally support from us and try to rally the troops here to go back and do something. No, 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 no. We're, we do not need to be doing that. That is not our job. That's not our responsibility. So that's something I'm concerned about. But now that we've gotten past that and... Hopefully nothing strange comes from all these exiles coming here, bringing their strange ideas and their refusals to admit defeat. I wanted to get into Ukraine. Wait, wait, no, 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 don't, don't leave, don't leave. <laughs> I, I know it's Ukraine for the millionth time, but uh, it's something that I haven't, it's something I've been thinking about and I haven't really seen talked about. And that is, where where will Ukraine make its next big stand? Like, you already know where I stand on this issue. I'm a firm believer that the Russians going to win this. But I'm also I also try to be realistic with you about this. Uh, Ukraine is not just going to surrender. But for weeks now, we've been talking about the coming fall of Bakhmut and how Russia's storming the city, they're outflanking the city, they're trying to encircle the city, they're moving into the outskirts of the city and encircling the troops in the city center by controlling the outskirts. It's, a, it's an encirclement within an encirclement within an encirclement, and the Russians just bit by bit are taking the city. I brought up last week about how I thought it was strange and very inappropriate for Zelensky to stake his entire claim to U.S. support on how on the brave defense of Bakhmut, this city which, by all accounts, is getting ready to fall. But we've been talking about Bakhmut for weeks now, and how it's looking like it's going to fall, and what some of those potential implications might be. The ejection of Ukrainian forces from the Donbass, because they're going to lose their this key point in their defenses, as well as this key logistical hub. And given how much they are giving in to this defense of this city, I'm officially entitled to believe, especially with Zelensky using Bakhmut as the centerpiece of his speech, I am now officially entitled to believe that it is as important as it has been being hyped up to be over the past few months, as this major point in Ukraine's defenses, as a major logistical hub. I am, you know what, I believe it now. I believe I've been skeptical up till the, up till about last week, but I believe now. So with the fall of this city, we're looking at the po Ukrainian position in the rest of the Donbass region becoming untenable. They'll have to pull back. And that's just one of the implications here. But all the talk of Bakhmut and how it looks like it's getting ready to fall, and how this will be the, the key to the Donbass, and the, the full liberation of these republics, which is what Russia's been fighting for, which may open the door for another round of negotiations. If the Donbass is completely liberated and Ukrainian forces are completely ejected from this, then perhaps we'll get another round of talks. The Russians say that they're willing to talk. Ukraine says that they're willing to talk. We'll see if we actually get uh, uh, actual discussions like we had back in March and April, where they sat down in Turkey and almost hashed out a deal completely independently of the United States and the West. Uh, 
So we'll see if something comes from that. But more likely, from what we can observe, it's like I said before, Ukraine is obviously not just going to surrender the second the Bakhmut falls. The war will go on. That much is what I expect. That much is what, at this point, most other people expect. But I haven't been, I haven't come across anybody really talking about what they'll do when it does fall. Because they're, they're going to need a new defensive position. I mean, they, they need a place to fall back to, to recoup their losses. They, they need a new defensive line. They need somewhere that they can dig into and offer up that same level of resistance for, hopefully, in the case of the Ukrainians, the same, if not a longer period of time. Maybe even a more consolidated position so that they can defend it better uh, with their reduced numbers. Because they, they've been reduced greatly. But I haven't come across anybody talking about what comes after Bakhmut. And what the Ukrainians might do. We, and even myself, I've been guilty of this. I've, I've been talking almost exclusively of what the Russians will do. Because the Russians are in the driver's seat of this. But... I started looking in the map because the question got to me and then I started looking. And when we look at a map and I'm, I was using Google Earth for this, the region uh, in the west of Bakhmut City, I see that as the potential for a new line of defenses. Because uh, when you look at it and you start at the city of Slovyansk, you see that it's a pretty decently large urban center. But when you look down when you look at the next city Kramatorsk and then Druskiva or Druskivka you see that these cities they they're situated along a river so not only do you have an urban environment but you have it you have a string of these cities on a river so you start at the city of Slovyansk which is just to the west of Bakhmut then you run down the river to Kramatorsk and Druskivka, and then you end at Kostantinivka. And this is just what I'm looking at. I, I didn't overlay this with a map of who controlled what in Ukraine, so perhaps Kostantinivka might not even be available for the Ukrainians to hold on to. But that line of cities, just west of Don... Uh, not west, well, yeah, to the west of Donbass, but just west of Bakhmut, I see them as a solid defensive position. This string of cities situated along what I believe is the Kalyanivka uh, River. The Kalyanivka River, and I say I say believe because there were very few maps that I needed uh, with you know, English translations for those Ukrainian rivers. But I I believe that this string of cities might be the next defensive line for the Ukrainians. Because it's not just the cities. It's their suburbs. And that, that's what really got me here. Because when I was looking at, I believe it was uh, Kramatorsk or Slovyansk, where the city sprawled out, but it, it sprawled out in a way where the, the sprawl, the, the, extra, the extra length of the city, the suburb, they flew along the river straight toward the next city. And then when the, you go further south and the suburbs, they just overlap with one another. And you get this almost continuous line of urban landscape, of, ur of the urban environment along this river. So it's not just the cities, it's their suburbs as well, which, again, they sprawl out perfectly along, aligned with the Kalyanivka River. And the one thing that we have learned from this war, if Bakhmut is anything to go off of, Bakhmut, Mariupol, and even Kiev, it's that the city and the urban environment remain the most effective man-made defensive structures that we have. So combining that, the urban environment, the city, with the natural protections of a moderately large river, the Kalinivka, and you have the potential for this to be a pretty decent place for the Ukrainian army to dig into. And one of the other reasons I think that this place might become the new focal point of Ukraine's defenses 
is because of that rough terrain we talk about whenever we discuss the Donbass and how this makes moving through it difficult. This string of cities along this river, this will be the last place where Ukraine can take advantage of that terrain for their defenses. Because once you go beyond this line of cities, and I, I found this very interesting, once you go further west of this line of cities, further west from the Kalyanivka River, that rough terrain fades away, and the Ukrainian countryside becomes extremely flat and wide open. And from what I'm looking at, they won't have another opportunity like this until they've been pushed back to the, the Dnieper River, with the big river in the middle of Ukraine. That's a really big distance to be pushed back to. They won't have another opportunity like this until they get to the Dnieper. And that's not to say that there aren't other rivers or other cities beyond the Kalyanivka. But once you go past the river, and what I'll preemptively dub the Kalyanivka line, the, the cities that I think the Ukrainians might want to dig into as in their next line of defenses... Once you go past that, the towns get significantly smaller, so that urban landscape becomes much more reduced and you become more exposed to attacks and artillery. So that defensive structure is, well, reduced in size and scale, which means its effectiveness gets reduced as well. But then there's also the rivers, because the rivers, once you go past the Kalyanivka, they start to run on a more east-west axis, rather than uh, a north-south one like the Kalyanivka, and like the Dnieper. The Dnieper is north-south, the Kalyanivka is north-south, but once you go past Kalyanivka, a lot of these rivers start to go east and west. That doesn't help you, considering that any Russian offensive operation is, by default, going to be an east-to-west movement. So if you want to defend against that, you need rivers that run north to south, or south to north. You, you want them to run on that sort of an axis, that up-down rather than left to right, so that you can use them to defend against that east to west movement. But, so the, I see this Kalyanivka line as the next good place for the Ukrainians to dig into, because they can take advantage of the rough terrain, they can take advantage of the river, and these are some pretty decently large urban centers. And their suburbs sprawl out into one another along that same river, so you can have an almost continuous line of defenses in the most effective defensive, man-made defensive structure in the world, which is still the city and the urban environment, even better than the trench. So... That looks to me as if it might just be the next big place that the, that the Ukrainians make their defensive stand in. Because you won't get another opportunity like that until the Dnieper. And the Dnieper is a huge river. Uh, imagine the Mississippi. Uh, or the Danube, if you would like. This is, or the Volga, if you're... Or, the, or maybe the Yellow or the Amazon. It's, it's a big river. It's a big river. It'll be difficult to cross for the Russians. They can do it, but it'll be difficult... But in terms of a defensive position, Ukraine is not going to get another opportunity like this until the Dnieper River. And by that point, the terrain is completely flat. So once the Russians get over to your side, they can move around and maneuver however they would like. And you don't have a terrain advantage anymore. Because that rough terrain vanishes once you go past the Kalyanivka River. So from a terrain perspective, from a a north-south axis river defensive line perspective from the urban environment being the most effective defensive structure still to this date. This line on the Kalyanivka River looks like it'll be the best opportunity for the, D the Ukrainians until they get to the Dnieper because the Dnieper is just a really, really, really big river that also happens to go on a north-south axis. But that's a lot of ground to give up if they're going to go to the Dnieper. And I don't think that the Ukrainians want to give up that much land this, well, I say this soon, but I don't, I don't think they want to do that yet. I don't think they want to pull back to that point yet. 
Maybe they will at some point, but I don't think they want to do that yet. And But even with this Kalyanivka line, I suppose the question then is, can the Ukrainians even man the line? Because it's not like they can just throw their full 190,000 troops into this theoretical line of mine that I've come up with on the fly, just looking at a map. Those troops, those 190,000, are spread out. They are spread out across that entire front. Plus, by the time the Battle of Bakhmut is over, Ukraine will probably, likely, have even fewer troops available to them than the 90,000 that we know that their force has been reduced to. Uh, the 190,000. So even less than that is what they'll have when the Battle of Bakhmut is over. And all of them, what's left, is still going to have to be spread out along that same thousand-mile front line. So, even if this is a, a solid defensive line like I think that it might be, they might still have issues manning it. Even, by, even if they pull back from Bakhmut and that consolidates their lines more. The losses that they're suffering in Bakhmut are just horrendous. We're, I'm, we're starting to get numbers like, oh, they're, they're losing two battalions a day. Uh, and over the summer, we were, I was playing with the idea, namely off of Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor's numbers, that they were losing about a, a brigade a day. A brigade. And it was like a couple hundred dudes a day, not two battalions. So multiple, multiple brigades a day. Now we're starting to get reports that they're losing those really large numbers of men all at once. And so it it begs the question, if they're taking losses like that, at that kind of a rate, one, what's the number going to be when the Battle of Bakhmut is over? And two, is that going to be enough for a proper defensive line? Because the farther they get pushed back, once they get pushed out of that, you know, that rough terrain in the Donbass, it becomes easier and easier for the Russians to push them. I mean, look at how much ground the Russians gained in the south, with the only major points of resistance being Mariupol and Kherson City. So, as they get pushed back, their line will actually get extended, because Ukraine will start to widen, like there's a... When you look at the border between Ukraine and Russia, it sort of, Russia sort of bends inward and Ukraine juts, juts out into Russia, essentially. And that creates a sort of a pocket, a, a cauldron, if you will. It creates a pocket where the front line is actually rather small. It's extended because Russia's gone all the way to Kherson City with their land bridge to Crimea. But it's still relatively a small front line. But if Russia starts to push them back, and you get a you get a front line where they're fighting from about Odessa to what city is that? Kharkov. They get pushed back to that. That's a way longer line. It doesn't look like much on a map, but when you factor in the the line that they have now is a thousand miles, and you get you get pushed back to Odessa to Kharkov with maybe a, a central point in Dnipro still under Ukrainian control, that's a way bigger line that you're talking about being forced to man with fewer people. And as the Russians start to push west with their offensive, assuming that that offensive only comes from the areas of Ukraine that Russia is currently occupying, will they even be able to man a proper defensive line? Because the... The Dnieper River is both helpful and hurtful because it's it's not like straight north-south. It doesn't go straight down. It comes out. It, it comes down. It juts out to the east. Then it comes back around. It, it bends. It bends going out eastwards. Then it goes back westward where you get closer to Kherson and Odessa. So it's it's both helpful because of its size, but it's hurtful because of its shape. So can the Ukrainians with these horrific losses that they're taking. I mean, they had 350,000 back during the summer. Now they're down to 190,000 and falling. Will they be able to properly man a defensive line?
especially deeper in Ukraine itself, because now you're talking flat, wide open terrain and a longer front line where it's easier to move maneuver around you. Can they do it? I think that this Kalyanivka line might be the last, last stand after Bakhmut. Because once you go past that point, it just becomes significantly and probably even exponentially harder to defend yourself from Russian offensive operations. The terrain starts to work against the Ukrainians the farther, wet, the farther inland they go into their own country. So, so we shall see. I haven't seen many people talking about what comes after Bakhmut. Uh, the you know immediately after Bakhmut, like where the Ukraine will go. But that was something on my mind, and I've now presented you with my speculations. And we'll we shall see. We will see. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. It's changing, but we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.